Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 266. It's titled, Momentum Investing and Trend Following. Back in episode 261, we discussed value investing, which is the process of buying assets that are selling for less than their intrinsic value. The intrinsic value is the value today of a future cash flow stream. In that episode, I mentioned that growth stock investors also seek to purchase companies that sell for below their intrinsic value. Yet the difference between the two is that growth investors focus on companies with very fast earnings growth. There's another investment strategy, though, that I haven't spent much time discussing on the podcast, and it doesn't care about intrinsic value. It's called momentum investing. Here's how Clifford Asness and his co-authors described it in a paper titled Fact, Fiction, and Momentum Investing. Momentum is the phenomenon that securities which have performed well relative to peers, i.e. winners, on average continue to outperform, and securities that have performed relatively poorly, or losers, tend to continue to underperform. Another name for momentum investing is trend following, or sometimes it's called time series momentum. I became an institutional investment advisor in the mid-90s, and one of my initial clients was a pension plan. They had a manager, it was a small-cap stock manager, Driehaus Capital Management. They're based out of Chicago, a firm that was founded by Richard Driehaus, and they were a price momentum investor in that they purchased stocks that were showing an acceleration in price. Price had been going up, their expectation that it would continue to go up. What was unusual about this manager is their turnover was very high. Their holding period for an average stock was just a few months. I know this because one of my duties when I first joined my advisory firm, I was an analyst. And as an analyst, I had to classify a particular manager's stock. So this was a separately managed account that Driehaus was doing. So the client just had 100 to 150 stocks in the portfolio. And I had to classify those stocks by which economic sector, technology, healthcare, et cetera. And it frustrated me because most managers, there wasn't much turnover. So I could use the data from the prior quarter. This manager had so much turnover, I was always having to redo all the work because there was always new names in the portfolio and other names that left. Here's the thing about momentum investing. It works. There's another paper titled Implementing Momentum, What Have We Learned? It came out in December 2017. It's by Ronan Israel and some co-authors. Four out of the five co-authors are from AQR Capital Management, which is 
the firm that Clifford Asness founded that I quoted from earlier, they're a quantitative management firm, and they focus on what works, be it value, momentum, or other strategies. They write, while the original momentum studies covered the period 1963 to 1990 in U.S. equities, subsequent studies have found a momentum premium in earlier periods, as far back as the Victorian age. In fact, some studies go back 212 years. They point out then that across markets and other assets, they have seen this momentum premium. Bonds, commodities, currencies, futures, global stock market indices, even sports betting contracts. And there's enough evidence to suggest this is not due to statistical chance. They write, academic evidence shows that not only has momentum tended to outperform the market, but also that it has been negatively correlated to the value premium, another factor that outperforms the market. We talked about that in episode 261. They continue, thus momentum tends to outperform when value underperforms and vice versa. Yet both have outperformed the market over time. Combining styles that tend to outperform the market on average, but at different times can be quite powerful. The resulting portfolio offers even more potential for consistent market outperformance. That's how we used to structure portfolios back in my initial years as an investment advisor. You had growth managers, some of which were momentum-oriented, and you had value managers. But why does momentum work? And does it always work? Can we actually take advantage of this momentum effect? Momentum and value are known as factors, which are broad, persistent drivers of return. And when there's a factor like momentum or value that outperforms the overall market, academics and practitioners want to know why. Usually, those reasons are risk-based. In other words, investors are somehow being compensated for additional risk they might be taking, which may include, in the case of value, stocks suffering through bad times, or even momentum suffering through bad times. But most of the explanations for momentum are behavioral, something investors are doing that lead to the outperformance of the specific factor. The first rationale given was way back in 1998. It was proposed by Nicholas Barberis, Andre Schleifler, and Robert Vishny. They felt that when a company had an earnings surprise, there was an initial underreaction or even inattention that investors just weren't paying attention to it. Later, when investors realized that the company was doing better than what was anticipated, then there was a momentum effect. For a period of, of 6 to 12 months, the stock did better. That was one explanation, sort of underreaction or inattention. Another rationale, also given in 1998, was in a paper called Investor Psychology and Security Market Under and Overreactions. They felt that certain stocks that demonstrated a momentum outperformed because of overreactions, overconfidence and aggressive trading, that investors felt like their models just were better in terms of being able to predict the future, and they were willing to essentially be more aggressive in their trading and believe that a stock that was going up would continue to do so. And so they would, there was some investment hurting there, and that would push the price up even further. Is it 
underreaction and inattention, or overreaction and overconfidence? We don't know, but it does appear to be a phenomena that is out there. But there's some challenges to it. One is that many of these studies are paper studies. They're simulated results. Academics are looking at a database of security prices, be it stocks, bonds, futures, and they're calculating the returns, really the risk-adjusted returns, and they're seeing an excess return there. Usually the portfolios are long a portion of the securities showing positive price momentum and short securities that are seeing their prices drop. But not always. There's usually a momentum effect, even with long-only portfolios. But most of it is paper profits. To be able to take advantage of a particular strategy, we need to be able to invest in it, be it a mutual fund or an ETF. Robert Arnott and his co-authors in a paper of 2017 was titled, Can Momentum Investing Be Saved? And they outlined three traps for momentum investing and why, when it's actually implemented, it often underperforms. The first is high turnover in crowded trades, which leads to high trading cost. It's very easy with a computer to screen for companies showing positive momentum. And if there are other individuals and institutions trying to plow into those stocks, it will first off lead to higher prices for it, but often it can lead to higher trading cost. I mentioned AQR, which is a firm that has products focused on momentum. They said you can overcome the high trading cost of the strategy by breaking orders up into smaller sizes, setting limit orders so you say which price you're willing to execute a trade at, sometimes allowing for some tracking errors. So even though your discipline might say to get in or out of the stock, you might not do it right then until you can get a better price for trading. As individuals, if, if we want to pursue a momentum strategy, we're not going to move the market. It gets more difficult if you're a big institutional manager. But there is higher trading cost with momentum because oftentimes the holding period is less than a year. And so you're turning over your portfolio very quickly. The second trap that Arnott points out is a careless sell discipline. They point out because momentum's profits accrue in a matter of months, as I said, they can quickly reverse course. And if you don't get out of the stock in time, you basically lose the excess return you had. And that makes it very challenging because there have been horrendous crashes when it comes to momentum investing. I saw that with this firm that I first was introduced to the strategy, Driehouse Capital. In 1999, they gained close to 100%. But 2001, 2002 were just terrible. I don't remember exactly. They must have lost 50 to 60%. The client couldn't stand the volatility and ended up terminating them. So there was a big crash when the internet bubble collapsed. And that continued into 2002. There was a huge crash there. There was another one in 2008. It happens across the world when there's a momentum crash, not just the U.S., but other markets as well. I remember one fund in 1999. It was the Von Wagner Emerging Growth Fund. It gained 291% in 1999. Huge. But by 2008, the fund had closed down. 
over its life cycle, and this was a momentum fund. From 1995 to 2008, when the fund closed, it lost 7.8% annualized. Negative. 62% loss cumulative, even though it gained close to 300% in 1999. Garrett Von Wagner, the firm's founder, was quoted in Kiplinger, My track record is not good at all. I wish I had done better for shareholders. I'm not happy about it. So momentum investing is vulnerable to crashes, which makes the sell discipline really important. So if it's sloppy, when you're actually trying to implement a real portfolio, it can lead to underperformance. The other trap that Arnott points out with momentum investing is the best momentum stocks to hold are the ones what he classifies as new momentum. So they've just had an earnings surprise, and they're starting to show an increase in prices. Versus stale momentum, where maybe it's a year or two old of an upward trend in terms of price. So these challenges with momentum investing, the first I mentioned is the simulated results versus real-world portfolios, how it can be difficult to implement in the real world. Second challenge is just the horrendous crashes that we see. And the third challenge is, will this momentum effect go away? If it's primarily behavioral-driven, is it possible that Investor behavior will change. Asnes and his co-authors write, the idea is that if something is driven by investor behavior, then arbitrage forces may eventually eliminate it. This is, of course, possible, but it is far from certain. And a risk-based factor can also disappear if tastes for risk change or the price of risk changes. Moreover, since the average investor has to, by definition, own the market, not everyone can be tilted toward the same risk factors. That is, for every value investor, there has to be a growth investor. If money managers continue to push value on everyone, then prices for value stocks will have to rise and will eventually eliminate the value premium. What they're saying is that all factors potentially could be arbitraged away, but they haven't been. Value has been a factor for a very long time, as has momentum, because human nature hasn't changed. We do get overconfident, overaggressive in chasing past performance, and that drives momentum investing. But it's a dangerous way to invest because you get these horrendous crashes. Before we look at ways to implement momentum in your portfolio, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. 
I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. While there are many hedge funds and other institutional investors that use momentum in their investing, certainly it's used by investors that invest in what's known as managed futures, where they're investing in commodity futures, and they're using trend following or momentum. As individuals, oftentimes the easiest way to participate in momentum strategies is to invest in an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund that utilizes momentum. MSCI has a series of indices that utilize different factors. They have value factor indices. They have momentum factor indices, both U.S. and international. So the MSCI USA Momentum Factor Index has done very well. Through July 31st, 2019, its 10-year annualized return is 16.89% compared to 14.04% for the MSCI USA index, or the overall U.S. market. Momentum has outperformed over the past decade. It showed that index it outperformed since 1994, 13.6% annualized versus 10.07% for the MSCI USA index. But that's an index, so it doesn't have the trading cost. So we want to see how an ETF that seeks to replicate that index is doing. iShares has one, the iShares Edge MSCI USA Momentum ETF. Ticker is MTUM. Expense ratio is 0.15%. When I compare the three-year annualized returns for that ETF at 17.04% compared to 17.34%, for the index. Now, it underperformed the index, partly due to the fee, but we're more interested in the tracking error. It really only lagged by 0.15% in terms of the tracking error, so very, very close. For the five-year, the ETF returned 15.51% annualized, 
versus 15.78% annualized for the index. That's very good and a simple way to get momentum exposure. I was interested in how AQR, what opportunities were there? Given AQR's employees and partners have done a huge amount of research in momentum and say that there's ways to reduce trading costs so you can actually take advantage of that factor, I thought, well, what? how have their funds done? They have the AQR, large cap momentum style fund, and the AQR, small cap momentum style fund. And they both underperformed the index. For the 10 years, the large cap version returned 13.7% annualized versus the Russell 1000 growth, which did 15.7%. And the overall Russell 1000, so the broad U.S. stock market, did 14.1%. The fund has underperformed for the three-year, the five-year, the 10-year, and since inception, as has the small cap fund given we've been in a period where growth has outperformed and momentum has been in a very good period the past decade, I would have expected the small cap fund to have done better. Which gets to the point that Arnott was making and and his co-authors. It's difficult to implement momentum strategies because of the high trading costs, that you have to have a good sell discipline, that you can get out before the crashes. The one momentum fund that I have used in my portfolio is a fund by Driehaus Capital. It's a Driehaus Microcap Growth Fund. They don't say in the prospectus that they use momentum. They're buying growth companies, but knowing the history of the firm, there is a momentum aspect to this fund. Oftentimes, it's closed to new investors because they're investing in microcaps, so very, very small companies. The fund only has about $250 million in assets. But it's done very, very well. For the the five-year, it's returned 18.59% annualized versus 5.69% annualized for the Russell Microcap Growth Fund. So it's outperformed the other funds that I mentioned, as well as that ETF over the five-year. For 10 years, it's returned 16.94% versus 10.62% for the index. That's also annualized. Expensive, 1.44% expense ratio, 155% turnover, but it's been a successful fund. And it's one that I have used, and I'll share how I use it in a little bit. But there are options out there, either ETFs, there are some funds, but most momentum funds fall short. So you have to be very careful which ones you use. Always recognize that momentum, particularly in a down market for stocks, they're going to do worse. There'll be way more downside momentum. And that's why momentum typically does better when value is underperforming. And as we mentioned in that value episode, value has underperformed growth and momentum for 12 and a half years. I'm not sure now's a great time to be going in to momentum investing. There's another way to utilize momentum, and that's for actually making tactical decisions for Investing, moving in and out of asset classes. This was a concept introduced by Gary Antonacci, and he calls it dual momentum. And by dual momentum, he's talking about two types of momentum. One he classifies as relative momentum, and it's looking at the price performance of a particular asset 
relative to other assets. And so when a particular asset class is outperforming other asset classes, and that has relative momentum. And then there's absolute momentum, where the price performance of a particular asset is doing better than it has done historically. And he looks at asset classes that exhibit both of those characteristics and then overweights that. There's a paper that I'll link to in the show notes, as well as there's also a book called Dual Momentum. Now, there's different ways to implement that strategy. Corey Hoffenstein did a blog post. He's from Newfound Research, and he pointed out the most popular benchmark model for implementing a dual momentum strategy is called Global Equities Momentum, or GEM. And it's a simple decision tree framework. First question is, did the S&P 500 outperform UST bills over the last 12 months? If the answer is no, then you invest your portfolio in the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, or an ETF. If the answer is yes, then the next question is, did the S&P 500 outperform the MSCI World XUS Equity Index? If the answer is yes, then you invest in the S&P 500. If the answer is no, you invest in some type of World XUS ETF. And that's it. And that ends up being your allocation decision. And that's why it's dual momentum. Here's the thing, though. How far back do you look to determine whether stocks have outperformed bonds or U.S. stocks have outperformed non-U.S. stocks? Here's what's fascinating about his study. He looked at seven different time periods for looking back from six months to 12 months. So there was a six-month rule, seven-month, eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. The time period was 2009 to 2018. You would think this type of dual momentum strategy wouldn't have that much variance in terms of performance based on your look-back window. But it was astounding. Over that period, the nine-month window returned 43.1% cumulative. The 10-month window returned 146% cumulative. In 2018, a 9-month window, and 2018, as you recall, was pretty tough the latter half of the year. The 9-month look back, deciding, okay, using those decision rules, that portfolio returned negative 8.6%, while a 10-month rule returned 0.7%. That's a surprising difference in performance, and he points out that these are not something that's going to mean revert. This is just implementation. And whether you're using a seven-month look back or a 12-month look back, it isn't that one is necessarily better than the other. It's somewhat random, which makes me hesitant to use such binary rules to choose my asset allocation. So how do I use momentum in my portfolio? I recognize momentum can go through periods of strong outperformance and horrendous underperformance. I tend to add more momentum, particularly I've been using the Driehaus microcap growth fund that I mentioned, after a market sell-off. So back, for example, in 2015, 2016, I added to this Driehaus microcap growth fund and it did very well. And then I sold much of it back in 2018. 
kind of mid-year 2018, as market conditions started to deteriorate. So I'm willing to increase my momentum exposure, particularly after a market sell-off. So that's how I implement it specifically using equities or funds. Next time that momentum is underperformed significantly, I'll probably use also the iShares Momentum ETF that I mentioned. The other way, and the primary way, though, that I use momentum is really what I call a fast variable. I want to know if the overall market for risk assets, such as for stocks, for high-yield bonds, is showing positive momentum. Is it in an uptrend? And within, let's say, stocks, are you seeing an acceleration of how those stocks are increasing. In other words, it might be going up, or they're going up at a faster rate. It's that latter version that I really, on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, call momentum. It's the rate of change. I also look at the trend. Is the trend positive or negative? I pull those together in what's known as market internals, and I rate it red, green, or yellow. But I use it as sort of a swing vote. So I'm always looking at economic trends. Is the economy improving or getting worse? And I'm looking at valuations. And I'm more comfortable, such as a year like this year, particularly in the first part of the year, when economic trends hadn't deteriorated so much, but were deteriorating, but there was positive momentum in the market. So I was less inclined to significantly pull back risk given the positive momentum in the market. Robert Arnott talks about using momentum this way. He writes, suppose, for example, a value strategy tells us to sell a hot stock that's on a tear. Suppose at the same time, our value strategy tells us to buy a lousy company that is in a free fall. If momentum is used to defer both of these trades until the momentum, strong for the former, weak for the latter, dissipates, then we are able to catch the early performance of momentum. He's suggesting that don't buy asset classes that are falling in value even though they're cheap. Wait till they appear to be bottoming and there's a reversal in the other direction. And don't necessarily sell asset classes that might be expensive if they have positive price momentum. Now, that's difficult to do. I try to do that, but I don't always do that. But it's an interesting way to approach momentum. Use it as a signal as opposed to just a binary decision. I'm in or out. We use it as a confirming vote, a swing vote. And that's how I've used it in my own investing as well as on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. As I mentioned, I want to adjust my allocation incrementally, looking at valuations, looking at economic trends, whether they're improving or getting worse. And if they're getting worse, I'll reduce risk using momentum as a swing vote, confirming the timing of any implementation decision. But I also use momentum directly by investing in pure momentum funds. Momentum is a real factor. It has generated excess return across many different asset classes. We can't ignore it, but we recognize that there's some traps there. There's some challenges. One it can be difficult for some funds to implement, and they haven't been able to actually outperform even though they're momentum focused. It has to be in a strategy that's cognizant of the cost, better manages the cost, and can separate 
Early momentum companies from those that are more stale. We can also use momentum in terms of making our asset allocation decisions, even using the, the dual momentum strategy that I talked about. That's not one I use, but there are many out there that like to use that, and, and the dual momentum book's been very popular. That then is episode 266. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's where I'll link to all those academic papers I mentioned. While you're there, please sign up for my free Insider's Guide email. Each week, I'll send you those links so you don't have to go back to the website to look. And it includes an essay on money investing in the economy, something I don't publish on the website. I just send to that email list to let you know what's going on. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.